Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, We're going to go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds, and so they can head to their class. And for the rest of us, uh, we will get our Bibles out, Luke chapter 2. All right, we're finally out of chapter 1, moving into chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 7 today. And and as Jordan already prefaced, uh, we are looking at uh, the Christmas message, the birth of Jesus. And so, yes, we, we can teach on that. We can observe it and look at it. Um, outside of Christmas, and so just kind of consider this uh, Christmas in July, if you will. And the truth is that actually no one, no one really knows when Jesus uh, was actually born. So uh, just kind of throwing that out there, December 25th, no idea. Um, that, that, that was not like uh, someone, you know, recorded that down and, and Mary passed it along and was like, this was when his birthday was. Um, no one actually knows. It was just the early Christians um, what they did during that time was they looked at a pagan feast and festival, a holiday called Saturnalia, uh, where it was kind of like Super Bowl-esque for us. Um, so it was already a time when everyone was getting together and everyone was celebrating and the seven-layer dip was ready. And they're like, let's just go ahead and say this was also Jesus' birthday. And uh, we've been celebrating it as Christmas ever since. Um, and so actually knowing the day does not take away from the significance of what we actually celebrate. And that's really what I want to share with you today is all that had to take place in order for the birth to happen in its entirety and in its significance. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to kind of break it down into four categories. We're going to look at the historical events that came around the birth of Jesus uh, we're going to look at the theology that comes with the birth of Jesus. What, what does this, what happened, and then what does this mean? And then we're going to look at the kind of biographical idea of it. How, how does this affect us? All right? How does this affect our lives? And then how does that then respond to what we call the doxological? It's, it's what is, how does this produce worship in us as we observe what is going on. So those are kind of the the four-layer dip, if you will, of what we're going to dig into in Luke 2. And so Luke 2, 1 through 7, uh, I'm going to read it for us, and then we'll we'll break down these these categories. Starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. All right, we are so familiar with that passage because, again, we observe it every Christmas um, as we walk through it. But what I kind of hope to get out of it from this morning is, um, is again, not just um, pondering the beauty of, of a baby wrapped in, wrapped in swaddling cloths and, and lying in a manger, kind of the nativity scene, if you will, of what we picture in our minds. 
Um, but I, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and see what all had to take place in order for this event to happen so that it builds our, our faith and, our, our, and, and really just strengthens our faith in the power and work of God and what He does in literally working out all things for our good and for His glory. And so when we look at the historical, historical facts, it's really important to, to first categorize this into two things. And one of the ways that the Bible does this for us is the Bible refers often to promises and fulfillment, all right? Prophecies and fulfillment. And really the Old Testament is, is a lot of the prophecy side. It's a lot of promises. It's a lot of this is what you should look forward to and, and what God is ultimately going to accomplish in the future. And then the New Testament is how God then comes and fulfills all that he promised of old. And so what we see is there's two primary prophecies. Now there's more than the two, but there's two primary prophecies or promises that get fulfilled in this text. And this again is historical, all right? This is looking back over time to see what God needs to accomplish in these verses that he's promised beforehand. And so one of the things that we see in, in regards to Luke 2 uh, the first is in Isaiah 7:14, written roughly 700 years before Jesus was born, where God says through the prophet Isaiah, he says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God's way of answering the human sin problem is Emmanuel. He tells his people it's going to be Emmanuel, God with us, God coming to be with us. It's a title, it's a designation, and that's exactly what it means. So what they're to look for is that God is going to come into human history. God is going to come and visit our planet to be with people. And how will we know when this Emmanuel arrives? You will see a sign. The sign will be, look for a virgin who gives birth to a child, a male son, all right? That's going to be your sign, all right? It's, I'm, I'm from a redneck background, so, you know, I'm, I'm con here's your sign. Like, that's, this is the sign that you're going to be looking for. Look for a virgin. In addition to this prophecy, which, again, was 700 years before the birth of Jesus, we also see another prophecy that kind of adds a little bit more detail to what you should look for. And this is found in Micah 5.2, written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And Micah 5.2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Which in the Hebrew is a literal rendering. He's, he's coming from eternity. Uh, so from these two and other promises, the expectation and the anticipation was a Savior is coming. All right, A deliverer, a redeemer, a hero. He will be God among us. He'll be born of a virgin as a male son in the little town of Bethlehem. Like these are the, the points that you need to look for. All right, If you're keeping a, a checklist of kind of like save the date and you're wanting to be there for when this date happens... This is where you need to be, and this is what you need to be looking for. And Luke 2, 1 through 7, is the fulfillment of these prophecies that God has promised. How was it fulfilled? How do the historical facts show us that this was, again, fulfilled? Well, what we know from what we've examined already is that Luke was a well-articulated, well-educated, intelligent man. Again, he, he was 
um, funded by Theophilus to go and do this historical account, this historical examination. Go and like do interviews with the eyewitnesses who were there. Get the historical facts, gather them together, and put them into a recorded document, which for us is the book of Luke and the book of Acts as well, in order to say this is what happened around the event of Jesus. So that what we're saying is we're not just kind of coming around and saying, hey, here's this incredible uh, story that happened, but yet there's nothing to kind of help prove it from historical data or from actual events or actual characters um, during that time that were in play. And so I love the fact that, again, he introduces us to multiple people and multiple events that happened that even outside of the Bible are historical events that actually are recorded in in our history through uh, record-keeping, through other historians and and whatnot. This happened. These events were true. And the first person that he introduces us to is Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar, again, was a real historical figure. Augustus ruled over the Roman Empire, which, again, was one of the most prominent, long-standing, far-reaching empires in the history of the world. Uh, It incorporated multiple nations, Languages, people groups, and in in addition to that, as he's ruling over this, Caesar Augustus is the adoptive son of Julius Caesar. Maybe you've heard of Julius Caesar before. Julius Caesar was actually his great uncle, and he adopted Caesar Augustus to confer on him all of the political kind of capacity in order to to succeed him as ruler. Um, His title Augustus means the majesty or the majestic and highly revered. So he was a fairly gracious ruler when it comes to previous rulers before him and even rulers after him, um, and especially compared to others in his day, far more so than who we've already previously met, um, King Herod, who was just a maniacal man through the totality of his life. But Augustus, even though he was a gracious ruler, he was not a godly ruler. He didn't love the God of the Bible. In that day, the Roman Empire, there was no separation of church and state like what we experience today. All right, The, the state or the government cannot dictate what we do and who we worship as a church. All right, And so like, if you don't have a good kind of understanding of like, well, you know, there shouldn't be separation of church and state. The church should have influence in the state. Yes, the church should have influence in the state, but we do not want the state to have influence in the church, all right? Like, we don't want them to govern what we do and who we worship and how we worship and so forth. And you see that broken down throughout the entire Old Testament of where they say, this is how you should worship, and God comes in and says, don't worship that way, okay? You need to worship a different way, and then they get thrown in the lion's den or, or they get beheaded or whatever it might look like. And so here in the Roman Empire, there is no separation of church and state. What you worship is who the emperor or the Caesar says you should worship. And so at this point, um, Augustus actually, because he is sort of not as bad as others, is like, I don't necessarily want you worshiping me, but I do want to be considered essentially the high priest of, of, of the empire, and I will tell you what to worship. And so he actually still made them render their worship to Julius Caesar, his predecessor before him. Um, So again, even though he's gracious, he's still not necessarily hitting it on the nail as um, who they should worship. And one of the things that Luke tells us is that a census um, was to be conducted. 
And so what Caesar Augustus does is he pulls in one of his right-hand men, uh, Quirinius, Governor Quirinius, to instill a census, all right, to, to literally go out. And, and again, the way that they structure their um, kind of political realm is, is different than us, but, but think about it as if Caesar Augustus is president and Quirinius is one of his cabinet members who executes whatever decrees Caesar Augustus sends out, all right? So he's going to be the one to go and execute those things. And so that's exactly what he does. He conducts a census. Now, the census wasn't just, let's count how many people we have, all right? And, and let's kind of see how many different nationalities are out there or see, you know, how many uh, people have we grown over the empire. Really, there were two reasons for why they would conduct a census during this time. One was, if there's new people who are out there, we want to know so that we can tax them. All right, so it was a to gain more wealth for the empire rather than to distribute wealth out to the people. Secondly, it was to determine how many uh, grown males there were in order to be able to know how many soldiers are going to be ready to defend the kingdom if, in fact, it needed to be defended. And so the motivation behind this census wasn't necessarily to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in order for Jesus to be born. All right. There were different motivations behind it, and that's going to come into play here in a minute, as we'll see. So then he introduces and mentions Joseph and Mary. Again, these two are completely antithetical to Caesar and Quirinius. They're, they're rural, not urban. All right. They're poor, not rich. They're powerless, not powerful. They're worshipers of, worshipers of God, not being worshipped as gods. They're completely antithetical from these other two. And Joseph and Mary, as we've examined, were living in Nazareth. And Mary's pregnant via miracle by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph is working as a carpenter. They both love God, they worship God, they serve God, and they're accepting of God's call in their life to bring uh, God into this world via this miraculous pregnancy, to bring Jesus into the world. And it comes to pass that the census requires that you travel to the town of uh, your birth or your family's lineage. And so as we know, Joseph is from the lineage of David. And so David, before he became king, if you know anything about David, he used to be a shepherd boy in the town of Bethlehem. So that's where his family settled. That's where he grew up. That's where he uh, went to school. That, that's where he resided. And so anyone in the lineage of David, when it came to census or family reunions, would come back to Bethlehem, and that's where they would get together as a family. And so whenever this census went out, that's exactly what was required of Joseph in order to register his family was to go back to his family line and go back to essentially the hometown of, of his lineage, his descendant of David. And so that's what moves them. Now, some translations refer to Mary as being great with child, all right? And we know she's great with child because as soon as they get to Bethlehem, she gives birth. She has the child. Now, Nazareth to Bethlehem is, is not just like a broad ripple to Nora. Like it's not just like four miles out of the way, you know, to, to get there. We're talking again about a hundred mile trek through the wilderness in order to get there. And, and if you've been pregnant full term, um, you know that's the last thing that you want to do, right? Like last thing you want to do is, hey, let's, um, let's go on a hundred mile hike through the wilderness uh, just for kicks and giggles. Like, you're not going to do that. 
And at the same time, if you're great with child, um, there's also kind of the terrifying prospect of, well, I don't want to I don't want to give birth between now and then in order, you know, when I don't have the doctors here, I don't have the materials and, and all, I don't have the, um, uh, the house and the bassinet ready and all these things. Like, like that's a little terrifying. You've got to step out on faith in order to go and do this. And again, I just love the fact that Joseph and Mary continue to show their faithfulness and their trust in God through every step of the way. Even when something as silly as this, we seriously, we got to go get registered. Like we got to go do this census thing. But they're obeying. All right. They're obeying and they're going to go and they're going to do this. And they're trusting again that the Lord is going to continue to take care of them. And that's exactly what he does. They do not have the baby. They make the journey and they actually arrive in Bethlehem. And lo and behold, she gives birth to Jesus. The whole city is filled with people because of the census because everyone's coming back to get registered. And so there's no room for them. And what they end up finding is, is a manger, which is a stable. Um, and, and it's where the animals are. Like if, that's, if we're thinking about it today, it's a barn or it's your garage. All right, like That's the only place that they could find for Mary to have this baby. All right, It's not wrap, wrap, wrapping him in these wonderful, majestic, beautiful things that you order off of Etsy or Pinterest in order to wrap your child in and lay them in that crib that you spent seven hours putting together. No, it's wrapping them in, in, in whatever cloth that they had available and then laying them in a feeding trough. All right, like That's the humble beginning where Jesus begins his rule, begins his reigning as the incarnate Christ. And that's exactly what happens. He's born in a manger and laid in um, this, this area. Now, in that day, um, it was also common for some of these stables. And, and again, there's debates on this all around, but we want to try to look at much of the history behind it as we can. There's some debates that stables were also built within caves, all right? So if you've ever heard the idea out there that he wasn't born in a manger, that he was actually born in a cave, it's not crazy to make that jump and that leap because caves were like same climate pretty much year-round. And so it was a good place to store animals and whatnot. And so during that first century um, after Jesus was born, the people of Bethlehem started flocking to this one specific area, which was a cave that used to have a manger or a stable in it. And they declared, hey, this was the, bur or the burial. This was the birth site of Jesus. Now, I only mention that because I used to kind of be one of those people where I was like a little skeptical about it. And I was like, you know, that's probably not where he was born. Um, especially if you go to it today, it, it's just, it's a really weird site because it's like, deep below the basement, kind of in a cave area underneath the church. And it's like this little hole that they've come in and, you know, commercialized it by putting like other plated stuff around it. And there's like one little spot where you can go and like touch your hand. And that's exactly where Jesus was born. Was that exactly where he was born? Maybe not. But an interesting thing to note is that God does love preserving things. All right. And what's interesting about that one place was around 300 to 400 A.D. Um, during uh, the, the rule of Emperor Constantine. 
Constantine was the first one who actually legalized Christianity as the state religion in the Roman Empire. All right. So if you're kind of just thinking in your mind history of the gospel advancing through Acts, through you know from basically 30 A.D. to about 60 to 70 A.D. Again, it's still outlawed. Christians are being uh, persecuted. They're being uh, crucified. They're being killed for proclaiming Christ. Well, it's so advances throughout the Roman Empire over the next couple of 100 years um, that if you're in the political realm and the majority of people are now Christian, typically the political realm is going to follow that. All right. So a lot of times people say, well, Emperor Constantine became a Christian and got saved and, and that's why he legalized Christianity. Or it was, um, if you want to remain in your political position, go with the majority. And most people believe he went with the majority, legalized Christianity. What his mother did at the time was she took that burial site and she said, this is a holy, or burial, I keep calling it burial, the birth site of Jesus. She said, this is such a holy spot that I want to construct a church over that spot. And that's exactly what she did. Later, that church had some damage to it. There was another church built on top of it. But an interesting thing to note was later on, the Persians actually came and invaded the area, and they destroyed every Christian church that was in the area. Except for when they came to the spot of Jesus' birth, this church, they saw some signs and some drawings out front of the three magi, the the three wise men. And in their mind, thinking this is some type of Eastern religion, they were like, this is a pagan church. This is not a Christian church. And therefore, it's the only one that they did not destroy. And therefore, it's the only one that is actually still operating today as a church. Multiple denominations uh, worship within it. But it's the only thing that is actually still original to that time and era. Um, That's just, again, kind of a historical fact uh, for you. Was it the in fact place of Jesus' birth? Maybe so, um, but if not, it's still interesting to note. And so behind all of this, one of the things that we see is that for political motivation, they're trying to gather through the census wealth and, and soldiers. Like that's the, that's the motivation behind the census. The motivation behind God is that I'm going to fulfill what I've promised. And so I'm going to use this census and I'm going to use these key figures in history in order to move about my will and plan in order for Jesus to be born of a virgin and to also get to Bethlehem. Because I prophesied that 400 years before, I'm going to make sure that he is born in Bethlehem. Uh, reflecting back on Luke 2, this is what Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I love that phrase, in the fullness of time, which is just at the right time. Like, God wasn't waiting around and was like kind of figuring out like, How in the world am I going to get them from Nazareth to Bethlehem? In this perfect moment, in God's word, he says, hey, this is is the appointed time. This is the divine time. And what that does for us is that builds our faith that God is sovereign and providential over all means necessary in order to bring about his will in order to bring about exactly what he has promised that he's going to do. 
And so regardless if it's something in your life that you're looking and that you're experiencing and you're like, you know what, maybe I'm in, in a workplace that, that feels evil or that has uh, employees that are always demeaning and, and, and mean and whatever it is, like God might be using that situation to bring about His good for your life. Like God might be using something in your life that feels like this is not godly, but yet he might be orchestrating and, and pulling strings. Like that's, you've heard me say it before. God's rigged all of history. Like he knows exactly what he's going to do and accomplish it exactly how he wants to accomplish it. And it might be through the means that appear to be other motivations behind them. It does not mean that God does evil or or enacts evil, but that just like with Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. God meant for good. And that's exactly what he's doing here in this scene of the birth of Jesus Christ, is he's pulling together all of these historical characters and these historical events in order to bring about the birth of Jesus. And that's exactly how he swings it. Now, those are just the historical events. And those are the things that we hear every single Christmas. Even if you're not Christian and you're just flipping on TV, you're going to see the Charlie Brown Christmas. You're going to see the Peanuts skit. You're going to see Linus get up and do his thing with his little blanket. And he's going to recite the Christmas story. And you're going to be like, I've heard of Joseph and Mary, and I've heard of Bethlehem, and I've heard of the manger scene, and I've heard of the swaddling cloths, and I've heard of, of all of, of these historical events that have happened. And so what we need to do is we need to move beyond the historical to the theological to say, what does this mean for us? What does this mean? What, what does, or, or just in general, what does this mean that God is doing through the birth of Jesus? What are, do we believe about this? And I really just have one word for you um, that, that is interpreted in these events, and it's incarnation. Incarnation. Incarnation means, it's a Latin word that means in flesh. In flesh. So we're going to do a little bit of seminary with this. Um, and one of the ways that we're going to get there is, is actually by giving you just an example of, of uh, an interview that happened with Larry King once. All right, Larry King was once asked, and, and again, this is a guy who's interviewed thousands of people. If you could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would it be? And he said, Jesus Christ which is a good answer. When they asked Larry, if you could ask him one question, what would that question be? And Larry said, and I quote, I would, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Like, that's an interesting statement coming from Larry King, who, who here is right, but is usually not often right. Uh, when it comes to, to views and ideology and so forth. But that's an interesting thing. I, I would like to talk to Jesus and I would like to know if his mom was really a virgin because that for me would define history. Well, what he's saying there is if he was indeed born of a virgin, then that means that he's not like any of us. There, there's, there's no one else in all of history that would be like him. And what he's getting at there is that he would actually be God in flesh. Incarnate is the Christian doctrine that God, who is spirit, took upon himself human flesh and came as the human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. This also comes from John 1.1 and John 1.14 where it says, In the beginning was the Word, 
And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. You're getting some Trinitarian language there. In the beginning was the Word, this logos, this, this, this embodiment of who God is. And that Word was with God. So, so there's, there's separate entities there. All right, they, They're both God, but they're distinct. This Word was with God, and this Word was, in fact, God. There's deity attached to this. And then if you jump down to verse 14, this Word, this God who's with God, second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh and dwells among us. Takes on flesh and dwells among us. So the second person of the Trinity, the Son who has always existed as God, with God, face to face with God the Father, has now become a man, Jesus Christ. That's what incarnation means. The Creator entered creation. God who is spiritual took upon Himself physical and entered into human flesh, became a human being, entered into life on the earth among us as us. That's why He's called Emmanuel, God with us. Now in theology there are, um, there are at least some tiered issues. Um, some people refer to these as primary issues. Some refer to them as secondary issues. I like to think of them in four categories. There's your absolute truth, which are closed-fisted issues. Um, there are your convictions, which are open-handed issues um, or, or that aren't necessarily core beliefs, but they have significant impact on the health and effectiveness of the church. And then there's number three, there are opinions, which are less clear issues that are generally not worth dividing over in worship and then four, there are questions, which are just less clear issues that are still on the table. We have questions. We don't have any like convictions towards this. We don't have any core beliefs towards this. We're just asking questions. Here, some people ask the question, is the virgin birth and the incarnation of Christ coming via a virgin birth, is it necessary as a core belief? Or is this a conviction? Is this a secondary issue? Why, some would ask, should we have to believe this? And, and, and others even, I mean, these are, again, Bible-teaching people. I don't think teach the Bible accurately, but Bible-teaching people who would say, what do we lose if Jesus' mom wasn't indeed a virgin? Well, for starters, the Bible is not true if that's the case. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible keeps saying that the virgin will be with child. Gabriel, an angel, comes and shows up to Mary and Joseph and says, uh, you are a virgin, but you will be with child. All right. Last time an angel lied, became the devil. Okay, like it's not good for angels to lie. Gabriel would be lying if Mary was not a virgin. Even Mary says that she was a virgin. So if this, if she were not a virgin, if we did not believe that that was actually true, then the Bible itself would not be true. Second, it would mean that Scripture is unfulfilled. We're still waiting for the virgin to give birth to the Messiah, the, the one who's going to come and save us, to be born in Bethlehem. So we're, if, if none of that actually happened, then we're still waiting and our sins are not forgiven. Third, it would mean that Jesus' mother was a vixen and not a virgin. All right, If she wasn't really a virgin, then that means she was either sleeping around on Joseph before getting married or her and Joseph were sleeping around. And, and, and this whole story was made up as a crazy story to maybe hide or conceive um, what actually happened and, um, and that now billions of people believe and actually call Christmas something that they shouldn't. Um, and we should just get rid of the whole thing. Fourth, it would mean that Jesus is just a normal guy. If he was not born of a virgin, he would 
literally just be a normal guy like any one of us. It's not the virgin birth of Emmanuel, God with us, in fulfillment of Scripture. So if we don't believe this, it changes everything. If we don't see this as theological, it changes everything about Christianity to where Christianity would not be true. It would not be true. The theological then leads into the biographical. If that's what it means, is that she was actually a virgin and that he is actually God incarnate. God coming from spirit and taking on the form of a human being and being born. What then does that mean for us? And this is the biographical. What does that mean for us? First, Jesus is like us. Jesus is like us. This is how it changes our life. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 puts it this way. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in um, grace to help in time of need. Jesus is like us. John Stott, a great British theologian, once said, In a world filled with suffering and pain, I could not fathom worshiping a God who is immune to it. See, in, in other religions, the concept of God is that he's, he's transcendent or that he's, he's far away. The life of sin and the life of sinners on earth is just a mess and it's uncomfortable and it's painful and it's deplorable. And so maybe God will kind of send an angel for help. Maybe he'll send some commands for help. But God himself is a far away, transcendent, distant God who does not come down and get involved. That, that's what all other religions teach. And that it's your job to work your way up to God to try to be near to him and eventually become like him or as him. The story of the incarnation is that he did. He came down and he got involved with us. And his name is Jesus. What this means is that none of us can look at Jesus and say, you don't understand. Jesus, you don't understand what it's like to grow up. You don't understand what it's like to be a teenager. You don't understand what it's like to have brothers and sisters or friends who, who mock you or belittle you or betray you or pick on you. You don't know what it's like to work a dead-end job. You don't know what it's like to be homeless. You don't know what it's like to be poor. You don't know what it's like to be mocked or lied about or beaten or abused or harmed or suffer or die. And Jesus would respond and say, no, actually, I do. I do know those things because I came as a human being. I became a human being. I grew up. I was a baby who had diapers changed. I grew up in stature, as we'll see later in Luke. I learned things. Even though I'm God, I still had to learn things. I, I, I grew up and was beaten and abused and tortured and all of these things. I experienced anxiety greater than any anxiety you've ever experienced. I've sweated blood because of the anxiousness of my soul. Have you sweat blood because of what you've walked through in your life when it comes to temptation and anxiety? That's what he's talking about here. He says, I am your high priest. I am your high priest who knows what you experience and I bring your pain to God and I bring God's pleasure to you. That's the role. 
That's the role. I'm your great high priest. I'm here for you. I understand what you're going through. And I'm here to love you and to take care of you. This is the great theme of Hebrews. That's why we don't have a priesthood anymore. We have a high priest. He's the only one that we need. And what he says is he can sympathize. He can sympathize with us. When you're suffering, talk to Jesus. When you're hurting, you can talk to Jesus. If you're struggling, you can talk to Jesus. If you're tempted, you can talk to Jesus. Because Jesus has been tempted just as we have been tempted. See, in his humility, entering into history, Jesus became like us. We have a God who, unlike any other concept of God, he gets it, he understands it. Unlike the gods of mythology, we have a real God with a name and a face, and his name is Jesus and what he says is we can run to him any time that we have need. And he gives grace and he sympathizes with us. He understands us because he too was fully human. Second, the first comfort is Jesus is like us. But if Jesus was just like us, that in and of itself would not be helpful. Some of you have friends that, that, that are like you. They're, they're like, I, I totally understand. I feel your pain. And even with the best of intentions, they can't do anything about it. They, they can't do anything about it. Jesus is encouraging because even though he's like us, he's also encouraging because he's unlike us. <laughs> he's unlike us. Think about that. Jesus, this is what it says in Hebrews 7, 26 through 27. We have such a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And that's where he's at today. He's ruling and reigning, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. Here's how Jesus is different from us. He never sinned. He never sinned. Was he tempted to sin? That's exactly what the Bible says. Yes, he was tempted to sin. We'll see that later in Luke. He was tempted, but he never sinned. This is where he's different from us. Every time he was tempted, he remained holy. He remained holy. He said yes to the will of the Father and no to the temptation of the world. No to the temptation of the world. And so what this means is when we're tempted to sin, we can run to Jesus and he can say this. I know how to get you around this. I avoided this sin too. I avoided this sin too. And when we do sin, we can run to Jesus. And what Jesus doesn't do, like some of our friends, is say, hey, nobody's perfect. I understand. I did the same thing. I'm no better than you. Let's just do it together next time. <laughs> like, like it's, that's not what Jesus says to us. Instead, he says, I said no to that sin, and I died for your sin, and I'll forgive you. I'm going to get you out of the mess that you're in. I'm going to change your whole life so that you don't go back and do it anymore. That's the grace that he gives to us in order to be unlike us. In order to be unlike us. That's what he does. He changes people. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and haven't. And he died the death that we should have died and won't if our faith is in him. Third thing in this one is... <clears throat> all about the historical, what happened, theological, what does it mean, biographical, do you believe it? By faith, yes, we believe this. And because he's like us, but also unlike us, he's able to come and make us like him. 
actually make us like him. The, the goal is not um, for us to be Jesus or to actually become Jesus. That, that's what world religions are teaching. That, that, that's what the lie in the garden was. Hey, hey, if you do these things, you can be God. That, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is we're trying to see that Jesus is who he is. And we want Jesus to increase in our lives so that we decrease ourselves that are not like Jesus. The sin, the flesh, the, the, the thoughts of our own ideologies and our own worldviews, the things that we feel is good but actually not good when it comes to the Imago Dei and the design that God has for humanity to flourish and function in a way that honors and glorifies Him and in a way that is loving and good to us. Like He wants us to correct those things by Him increasing in us and us decreasing ourselves. I mean, that's why, again, John the Baptist, that's why his, what he's most famous for, uh, for preaching is that Jesus would be made much of in us and that we would decrease, that we would decrease. So it's not this, let me look into myself in order to become God and to, and to find the deity within, but rather it's to look into Jesus and say, Jesus, can you come into me and get rid of the mess Get rid of the sin that's unlike you and bring out what is like you that is your identity that makes me more loving and patient and joyful and kind and generous and sacrificial and whatever it looks like in order to glorify God in that type of lifestyle. That's what Jesus is doing for us in the incarnation. Not only is he coming into the world as a human, but he's also coming into us in a relationship where he then changes the make. I mean, think about it. In all of creation, the whole idea is that he's also going to make the heavens and the earth new. He's coming into creation to fix creation. He's coming into us incarnate in order to fix us, to make us new, to make us more like him. Here's what it says in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Again, not multiple gods, one God. Not multiple ways to God, just one way to God, the man Christ Jesus. And it begins with God coming to us and believing that that is for us. For us to be made like him. God descends down to you. It's not about pride. It's not about self-actualization. It's not about self-esteem. It's about humility and it's about repentance. It's not about what we do. It's about what he does to make us acceptable in the sight of the Father. And that leads to our response, the doxological response, the worship. Historical, Jesus was born in Bethlehem to a Virgin Mary. Theological, it's incarnate. God is with us. Biographical, we believe this and it changes us. It transforms us. And it leads us to worship, to have a worshipful response. And I believe wholeheartedly that a worshipful response is always going to be in two parts. Adoration and action. Adoration and action. And what I mean by that is that adoration is that we, we're excited about Jesus, we love Jesus, and we want other people to meet Jesus. Those are how those two things play out. 
When it comes to adoration, this is always going to be praise. It's going to be thanksgiving. It's going to be prayer. It's going to be trust. It's going to be enjoyment of the person and work of Jesus. It's going to be treasuring Jesus more than you treasure anything else in this world. It's going, that's why where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Like if God has truly redeemed you and saved you and changed out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, He's given you a heart of Christ. He's given you a new identity that new heart is going to treasure Jesus. It's going to be all about Jesus. It's going to look at the things of this world and say, those things don't mean anything. Those things aren't as enjoyable as what I might have thought they used to be. I don't want those things. I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that. I don't want to think that. I don't want to pursue that. Rather, what I really want deep down, and I think this is the question we need to ask ourselves on a daily basis, is what do I really want what do I want out of today? What do I want out of this moment? Is it to give myself over to the gratification of sin? Or is it to give myself over to Jesus and treasure Him more than anything else that is in existence? All of this leads us to that type of adoration. We love Him. We want Him. We worship Him. Because we know that He is pursuing us and that what He has done in His birth and what God has done to orchestrate that is to ultimately lead a life on our behalf because we couldn't in order to go to a cross and die the death that we deserved. When you really in, like just pull all of that in and you understand it, it should change things. It should change things. It changes your entire perspective on how you live your life because we then respond. Now, some of the ways that you do this in adoration, it, it might look like individual moments of spirit-filled joy in your life. You might be driving in your car and you might be, hear a song that comes on the radio and you might sing a praise and worship song and you're, you're just in that moment worshiping Jesus. You might be in your room praying and in that moment you're worshiping Christ. You might be reading God's word and in that moment you see something and you're like, man, God is so good and he's so gracious and you worship him. Those are individual moments on a daily basis where you're abiding in Christ and you're worshiping him by adoring him. Another way that that happens is when we gather together corporately and we sit under song and prayer and the preaching of God's word, we are collectively worshiping together as a body. So yes, it happens to you individually, but as individual members, we are also one collective body as an individual, as a church, as a local church, where we come together and we worship God to get together. And we adore Him and we praise Him together. We celebrate all of that. And we celebrate all that, again, in song and prayer and word. We celebrate that in communion and what we do at the end of our ceremony where we look at Jesus' body being broken and His blood being shed, His incarnation for our atonement, ultimately. All of this produces a worshipful response, but it also produces action. Again, the birth of Jesus is not God running away from us to hide His holiness from sinners. The birth of Jesus is God coming to the world, God coming to the culture, God coming to the sinners, to the pain, to the hardship, to the idolatry. He goes to the demon-possessed, to the outcast, to the poor, to the marginalized, to the fornicators, to the adulterers, to the alcoholics, to the abusers, to the proud, to the arrogant, to the rich, to the sexually confused, to the politically motivated, to the self-righteous. He goes to those who need forgiveness of their sins. It's action. 
Like if we, we cannot sit back and not engage. That says something about our understanding of the gospel. If, we are, if Jesus is making us like him, then we too are going to be incarnate. We too are going to go into the world, but not be of the world. We too are going to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is going to be an action. And it's going to be produced within us out of the adoration of what we've seen Jesus do for us. For us. All of this is so much deeper than what we just kind of celebrate in the historical events of Christmas. Because it has meaning. We can rest assured in the historical events that are proved over and over and over that they happened. But we can also rest assured in the theology of what's going on time and time again where the Bible says this is what God has done. Rather than running away from the sin of the world, he stepped into the mess. And he came in the messiest way possible. And not only that, but he came to pursue sinners to call them to repent and be baptized. That was his way. When Jesus was born and when he started his ministry around the age of 30 years old, he proclaimed his first sermon, repent and be baptized. You know what repent and be baptized is not? It is not a message that says, well, well I respect their life choices. Whatever they think is good for them, let them work it out for themselves. We, d- we don't parent like that. If you parent like that, you're going to get your kids taken away from you and you're going to go to prison. Because we don't just let our children work out their life choices on their own. We don't just let them figure it out on their own. You want to go play in the street? Man, I, I, I just, it, that's your choice? Just figure it out. Oh, you, you, you just want to eat ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Okay, you know, just, just figure that out. I respect your choice. I respect your decision. No, no. As Christians, what we're not doing is we're not going to people saying, these are our opinions and you need to believe them. What we're proclaiming is that we are sinners who have received an otherworldly message that has not come from any opinion of any human that has ever lived, except for one human who was fully God and fully man. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Not today, but later. Who is fully God, fully man. We respect his opinion, and this is what he preached. He preached a design. He preached what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2. And we broke it, and we fractured it, and we messed it up, and we created our own choices, and we created our own relativism, and we created what we think is good in our own self-help, self-love, self-meditation, self-actualization, self-righteousness, We created our own ideology, our own worldview, and we're going to hell for it. We're going to hell for it. We're we're, we're damning one another because of it. And what he has graciously done is he stepped into our existence and he said, stop. That's what repent is. Stop. Turn away from that. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to you, but it's killing you. It's killing you. 
It was killing me at one point. But graciously, someone told me, stop. You're being an idiot. You're being a sinner. You need to see the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ who comes to correct you and to rebuke you and to change you. To say, don't do that anymore. Do this instead because this actually lives to life abundant. I mean, that's what we want for everyone, right? But to be honest with you guys, it's going to take hard conversations. It is. This is not everyone when we share this message. Hey, I, I have some thoughts that aren't originally my own, but they come from what I believe to be God over all of creation, over all of the universe, over everything, who also sent His Son Jesus, who, who came and was born of a virgin, who, who then lived a perfect life and never sinned, and then He started preaching a message, and this message runs in line with everything that is throughout the entire design of God's Word in the Bible. And this message is that what we are doing today is not good. And, and instead, we need to live a life that is honoring and in and, and, and step with His Spirit. And the only way that we can do that is by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ, that He lived a perfect life, that He died a perfect death, and that He rose again three days later. And we give our lives over to Him, and He saves us, and He reconciles us, and He brings us back into relationship with Him. I need you to believe this because your eternity is at stake. And sometimes people are going to say, you are a narrow-minded, bigoted idiot, and I want nothing to do with you for the rest of my life. There are some people who might be family members who will say that to you, who might be dear friends of yours that will say that to you. But the most damning thing that you can do is never say it to them. Never say it to them. Because what also happens, as we believe, God's rigged all of history, and He has people that He's saving at the proclamation of the gospel, is when we do proclaim that to people, whether it's family members or neighbors or coworkers or whoever it might be, when we proclaim it, God does a miraculous thing in their heart where He removes the heart of stone and He gives them a heart of flesh and their faith saves them. They believe in Jesus and they come to light and all of a sudden now their entire life is going to be indebted to you because you gave them the, you showed them the grace and the mercy of Jesus and they get saved. I'm telling you guys, I'm so thankful. I mentioned this last week. I'm so thankful that the fifth grader that lived next door to me shared the gospel with me because I was a sinner and I was going to hell. I was trying to influence him in so many ways to live a life of debauchery because that's how I was raised. I was raised, I mean, I was 10 years old when my dad was like, hey, come sit down with me and watch pornography on the screen. Like, that's what I was brought up in because he was so afraid of me becoming um, a homosexual or something. Like, it's deplorable. And yet my neighbor had the grace and the mercy to come to me and say, there's a better way. There's a better way. And at first, I was like, dude, you're weird. This is weird. But he kept pressing, and he kept pressing, and he kept pressing. To eventually, I stopped influencing him the way that I was trying. And God got a hold of me, and he saved me. He saved me. And to this day, he's still, his name's Clint Lamberth. He's, he's planting churches. He's planted churches in Florida. He's back in Tennessee, planting more churches in Tennessee right now. Like, he was a God send to me. 
And that then led to my family. Like, I was just, I mean, straight out of the gate. I was One of the first things I saw, and I'm so, I know, we're going long, but I, Paul, right out of the gate. Paul, I'm going to go preach in Damascus. Three days later, God changed me, but I'm going to start proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. He goes and he starts preaching, and people get saved. Like, in that moment, I was like, I took whatever that fifth grader shared with me, and I walked inside to the kitchen. I said, Mom, can I share something with you? I want to tell you about Jesus. I just met him. He seems like a really great guy. I want you to know him, too. And in that moment, my mom was like, okay, what happened? (laughs) What happened to you? But then she started thinking about it, and she started wrestling with it. I go to my older brother, and I start telling him, hey, we need to to figure something out with Jesus. I just learned about Jesus. We need to consider Jesus. We need to think about him. We need to learn about him. Let's let's do that. And again, I think he punched me. Yes, he did punch me. And then I'm going to my dad, who I'm most fearful of talking to about this. Because I just know the kind of guy he was at this time. And it comes to our fresh, my freshman year in high school, it was about two years later, all four of us, my mom, my dad, me and my brother, we get baptized at the same time, January 26, 2002, because the gospel was proclaimed and lives were changed. It was proclaimed and lives were changed. That's the purpose for God incarnate. God incarnate. That's what we celebrate every December 25th. That's what we get to celebrate Christmas in July today. And let it be, as, as, as we celebrate, let freedom ring. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. He set us free from the bondage of sin because of what God did in pursuing us. It leads to adoration and action. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your sovereignty in working all events and all people in history to make your will come about. We thank you that this is you pursuing us in our mess and in our sin and you coming and you getting involved in it in order to redeem us out of it. And we thank you, God, that 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 involves us by being having our lives transformed to become more like you, like your son Jesus. And that it leads to our adoration, our worship of you, and also our action. This is not a sideline sport. We are in the game, and we are proclaiming this good news to those around us. We're sharing it with them regardless of the outcome. We're just called to share the message, to share the message. And it's all possible. It's all possible because of what we're about to engage in. Your son being born into the brokenness of this world in order to actually go and break his body and shed his blood. The ultimate act of love, sacrificing his life for sinners. An undeserved for the undeserved. May we enter into a time now of just worshiping him and cherishing him for his sacrifice. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at